We are in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1004. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on the preaching and receiving of his word. Our Father, we do ask that this morning you would thunder your word from heaven, that you would do such a work in our souls that we would know that you have been in this place and that you have spoken, that we would be silenced under your word and humbled under your word, that we would be convicted, that we would be rebuked where needed, and that we would be encouraged and built up in the truth as it's in Jesus. We pray, O oh God, that you would minister to us. We pray that your word would be effectual unto our salvation. We pray that we would leave this place rejoicing in you and clinging to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, many years ago now, as Anna and I were working in an evangelistic ministry in, in New Jersey, we would have to go out every night on the boardwalk and give out tracts. And if there's anything that you know about me is I do not like evangelistic tracts. I think most evangelistic tracts are boring and uncreative. I think that the people that make them have not obeyed the Lord oftentimes in being wise as a serpent. I think that they are oftentimes counterproductive, but on one occasion, Anna and I found a track at the ministry we were working at, and the title of it caught my attention, and whenever we would go out and give it out, it had the most incredible reaction from people, and the title of that track was Four Things God Cannot Do. Four Things God Cannot Do. And when we would go out and hand it out, the reactions would vary sometimes. Uh, somebody would turn to their friend and said, see, I told you so, thinking that he was right, that there was no all-powerful being that we call God. And sometimes they would say, sir, are you guys an anti-Christian group? And what I loved about this track was it captured their attention for a moment so that they would open it. And when they did, it said something like this, number one, God cannot... Tolerate evil. There's one thing God can't do. He cannot tolerate evil. Two, God cannot accept any solution except the saving work of his son, Jesus. Three, God 
cannot reject anyone who comes in the name of Jesus. And four, God cannot take second place in your life. I thought it was a fairly clever track. And I think it's interesting because the passage we have before us actually is going to tell us there are two things God cannot do. And all of it can be really reduced down to one. God cannot lie. He cannot change. He cannot go against his character. And that means when God makes a promise, that promise is guaranteed. It is sure It is certain, and because Jesus fulfills it, it becomes an anchor for our souls. Now, that's important because we've just come off of the most searching and frightening warning in the book of Hebrews. We've just come off of a passage that probably would leave every true believer spiritually trembling as to whether they would depart from Jesus at any time. Remember, we talked about that passage not long ago where the writer says that Those who were once enlightened, had partaken of the Holy Spirit, had tasted of the good things of the age to come, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And we said, there is no one who ought to be able to take that warning and say, well, that's not about me. I don't need to worry about that. But that the writer of Hebrews puts it out there so that you would say, is it true about me? And yet, the writer turns, doesn't he? And notice in verse 9, on the tail end of that warning, he says, Yet we think better things concerning you, brethren, though we speak in this way, things accompanying salvation. And so what he is now doing is he's giving us a theology by which we may be assured that we are anchored, that we are safe, that we will make it to glory, that we will not drift. That was the first warning of this book. Beware, brethren, lest any of you drift in departing from the living God, lest any of you drift away from him. And now what the writer is going to do is he's going to bring in a very sophisticated argument beginning there in verse 13. He's going to, he's going to take us back to Abraham. He's going to take us back to the Abrahamic covenant, which if you're a Christian is everything. It's everything. The apostle Paul will say in Galatians that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, that you are heirs according to the promise, that everything the Bible unfolds is an unfolding of what God promised Abraham for everybody who has faith in Jesus. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to take us back there. It's possible that he's taking us back there because he's introduced the idea of Melchizedek. Remember, Jesus is the priest like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the high priest who came to Abraham and he blessed Abraham. And we're going to learn about that in the weeks ahead. But now notice that what the writer of Hebrews does is he says in verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, And he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. The first thing we're going to see here is the certainty of God's promise. I think it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, the surest way for you to avoid apostasy, falling away, the best way for you to continue on is to muster up enough willpower to believe in your own strength and that it's by your own determination that you will not fall away. He doesn't say that. He takes us back to the foundation. He says, the surest way for you to persevere to the end is to know, be convinced of, and believe that God who is promised does not lie, he cannot change, and that he will fulfill his promise. And God is so committed to that principle. God is so committed to being a God of his word. The Bible everywhere sort of gives us these hints. Not one word of all that the Lord spoke didn't come to pass. The book of Samuel. Everything that God says will come to pass. And God is so committed in you being assured of that, that God swore. He is an oath-taking God. He swore 
by the greatest being that he could ever find himself that he would fulfill that promise. Notice the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Uh, William Still, I love this quote. He says, if God the Father takes to swearing an oath, then something major must be involved. If God the Father takes to swearing an oath, because honestly, God never takes an oath outside of his covenant promises. The only time God ever says, I promise I will do this. The only time God ever says, I promise you, I swear to God, I will do this. God says, I swear to God, I will save my people. I will fulfill my promises. And when God swears, you know something major is involved. And everything that the writer is going to set up for us now is that everything that Abraham received was what God swore to fulfill by himself. And if you go back to Genesis and you go back to those promises, God calls Abraham. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham's an idol worshiper, we're told. He's not a godly man. And God calls Abraham out and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. All the nations are going to be blessed in your seed. I'm going to give you a son. Everybody's going to be blessed in him. He who blesses you will be blessed. He who curses you will be cursed. All the families of the earth will be called by your name. And God changes Abram's name from Abram, father, to Abraham, father of nations, father of peoples, because Abraham is going to be the model of the one who inherits all the blessings. And every blessing in the Bible, every blessing in Jesus Christ was promised in seed form to Abraham. So that means, with John Owen, we can say that the weakest believer in the world is equally partaker of the spiritual grace and mercy of the promise made to Abraham. It means it doesn't matter how young a Christian you are. Maybe you're brand new to the faith. You haven't been a Christian long. You don't come from a Christian home. Maybe you struggle with the world, and yet you are trusting Christ, but you're, you're battling to get out of a certain situation, yet you're trusting Jesus, and, and maybe your faith is like a mustard seed, but because God's promise to Abraham is also to you, because he promises to everyone who has faith in Jesus, that all those blessings and all those promises become yours in Christ. So that the Apostle Paul can say, All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That means from Genesis on, everything God ever promised, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, those promises for you are yes and amen if you're in Christ by faith. And notice that as he begins to unpack this, the writer of Hebrews looks back at the Abraham narrative Notice verse 14, and as he unpacks God's oath, he says that when God said to Abraham in verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you, that that was the promise. That was the promise that Abraham would have a son and that that son would bless the nations and that he would have offspring. And everybody who believes in Jesus, the Bible says that you are the offspring of Christ, that you are his spiritual children, that God so fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant in Jesus Christ that everyone united to Jesus can be said to be a child of God in Jesus, an heir, a child of Abraham, the offspring of Jesus Christ. And notice that the writer notes there in verse 15 that Abraham had no way of seeing 
that promise fulfilled immediately. I think this is huge because the surest way for people to drift from Jesus is to get tired of waiting on God to fulfill his promise. I think actually it is the heart of unbelief is that you don't see God fulfilling his promise. So you grow discontent. So you go to other things that you think will please you better that you can have instantly now here and now. And I think when the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham patiently waited to obtain the promise, he's instructing us that that what God promised Abraham, he's promised us. And just as Abraham never got it, he didn't even get land. Abraham, God promised Abraham the land of Israel and he didn't get the land because it was about the heavenly city. All Abraham got was a little burial ground for himself, his wife, his son, his son's wife, his grandson, and one of his grandson's wives. That's all Abraham got was a burial ground. He got Isaac, and he got a place to be buried. And yet he waited patiently. He waited. He wrestled with the promises of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. Notice in verse 16, the writer picks back up on this idea of God swearing by himself. How serious is God about fulfilling his promises? How can you know that what you hear proclaimed in the gospel is true? How can you latch onto it when the world around us rejects it and says, where's the promise of his coming? I don't see Jesus at work in the world all over the place. I see a bunch of disenfranchised people all over in pockets who are angry about politics, who are angry about this and that. That doesn't look like God's fulfilling his promises. And notice what the writer says, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. What they're saying is even when you go into a contract with somebody to buy real estate or whatever you do, you swear, you take an oath, a contract. You say, I am legally binding myself to this and you're essentially saying, I swear by the laws of the United States of America and the punishments that would be incurred. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God considered the value of who must be sworn by, and he looked out and and God said, well, I'm God, and there's nothing greater than me, so I will swear by myself, and I'm unchangeable, and I'm dependable, and I'm faithful, and I'm holy, and I'm good, and I always do what I say, and so I will swear by myself that what I promise to do will happen. I swear by myself, I am true, I am unchangeable, I will establish in the minds of my people that I will do everything I have said I will do. And so you find the I wills of God. I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible. It's a good exercise when you're reading through scripture. Start focusing on all of the I wills of God. God says, I will, I will bless you, I will keep you, I will establish you, I will redeem you, I will bring you through the waters, I will bring you through the fires. Those are all the I wills of God swearing by himself, making promises on the very character of God himself, of which there's no greater being. And notice, notice what the writer tells us, not only does God promise and swear by himself, But notice this in verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's you. If you're a Christian, you're an heir of promise. God wanting to show to you and to Abraham 
more convincingly. He wants to convince you. He wants you to say, I need to be convinced of the truth of Scripture. And so God wanting to convince you, notice this, about the unchangeableness of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, I think this is a bit confusing because you might go back to the Abraham narrative and you might say, what is he talking about? When did God confirm his promise by an oath? Well, I think it's Genesis 15. It's the cutting of the animals. God made all these promises to Abraham. He redoubled them over and over and over again. He kept giving them to Abraham just like he does to you. God is so good. He keeps giving his promises to to confirm in you the truth of them. And then... He brings Abraham to a place where he cuts apart the animals in a covenant ceremony. And normally in the ancient Near East, the two parties would go through the two cut animals as they made that contract. And they would be saying, if I break this covenant, if I break my part, so let what happened to these animals happen to me. And yet Abraham doesn't go through. God goes through. It's the smoking torch, the flaming pot. God's glory passes through. And inevitably, inevitably, God is saying, if this covenant is broken, let me be cut apart. And Abraham and you and me have broken God's covenant. And someone has to be punished. And so he is cut apart at the cross. The oath that God established to Abraham in the cutting of the animals is seen to be fulfilled that covenant being broken by you and your rebellion and sin and me and my rebellion and sin, when Jesus is cut apart, remember when he sits at the supper and he says, this is my body broken, the animals cut apart, my body broken for you, Jesus Christ, because God confirmed his promise by an oath that he was going to fulfill it, that he was going to redeem his people, that he would have all of his stipulations and conditions, all that was necessary for them to become heirs of promise, God would do himself. And notice what the writer says. He says in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, that used to confuse me because there's really only one, he doesn't lie, but two unchangeable things, the unchangeableness of his word of promise, that doesn't change, he never reneges on his promise, and the unchangeableness of the The oath that he takes when the animals are cut apart, both of those things are unchangeable. Notice what the writer says, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we see here, we see that what the writer wants us to take away from this is that when we are struggling with the pull of the world, when we feel the temptation to go to the world, when we start to have doubts about Christianity. The Bible, by the way, never, never encourages doubts. It always encourages us to deal with doubts. It's become very popular in our day for churches to say, if you have doubts, come here. We're a safe place for doubters. Well, we're a safe place for doubters because the Bible deals with doubts. And God is saying, let me deal with all your doubts by affirming to you that I have promised that I am unchangeable, that everything that I have said will come to pass, and that I have confirmed that in that covenant-breaking oath in the cutting of the animals. And when we look at Calvary, when we look at the cross, we see that God means business. That's what the cross says. The cross says God doesn't lie, God doesn't change, God means business, 
God fulfills his promises. That's why the cross is so important. The cross takes everything that God promised to Abraham and it says, it is finished. It says it is finished. I don't know where you are. Maybe, maybe you're complacent to these things. Maybe you don't care. Um, when you look at the cross, you see God saying, I am God who does not lie. I am God who does not change. I am God who has promised. I am God who fulfills my promises. Trust me. Notice the language. Notice this, that he says in verse 19, the God who doesn't lie, we have fled to for refuge. We have fled to him for refuge. Notice that, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Secondly, I want to point out in this passage that the writer is teaching us about the enduring faith of believers, the enduring faith of believers, the certainty of God's promise, the enduring faith of believers. Where does he set that out? He sets it out with Abraham. Let's go back there. Notice that. It says, when Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Notice the last verse after the warning in, in verse 12. Notice what the writer says there. He, he says, don't be sluggish spiritually. Don't be sluggish. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now he introduces Abraham and he says, if you want the premier example of one who through faith and patience inherited the promise and who made it to glory, look at Abraham. And when we look at Abraham, we see trials and we see difficulties. We see hardship. We see many times when Abraham should have said, this is nonsense. What did I give up when I left my father's house, when I left all the riches, when I left us going to the land of Canaan together? What have I given up? I've gained nothing. You see Abraham at times wavering, don't you? Wondering, is God really going to fulfill this promise? Frustrated, taking into his own hands an attempt to fulfill the promises by going into Hagar and having Ishmael. Abraham, looking at the promises of God, and yet we come to the book of Romans, and it says he didn't waver in unbelief. That struck me. Many times as a young Christian, how when I read the Genesis narrative, Abraham sells his wife off to other men twice, kings that he's afraid of. He takes into his own hand the attempt to fulfill the promises by going into Hagar for Ishmael. He lies repeatedly. He does many things wrong. And yet the writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Romans, Paul says, he never wavered in unbelief. Not even once. Now, either Paul is misreading Moses... Or we're to conclude that the blood of Jesus so covered the unbelief of Abraham that those great moments of faith in which he did obey and follow the promises of God are covered with the blood of Jesus, and it's as if he never wavered in unbelief. Now, I was thinking about this last week. When you, look at, um, when you look at the great faith chapter at the end of this book, there are four guys in there that probably shouldn't be in there. Um, Gideon, who becomes an idolater at the end of his life. Samson, who falls to wine and women his whole life. Jephthah, who doesn't believe that God's going to give him the victory, and so he promises to sacrifice his daughter to God. I think perpetual virginity is probably the best understanding there. And Barak, who though he had God's promise of victory, wouldn't go to battle 
went to Deborah, and Deborah said, well, you'll win victory, but a woman will get glory, not you. And those four men are in the great faith chapter. What's the point of that? The point of that is that, that though at times we all do waver in doubts and unbelief, if you have saving faith, the blood of Jesus has so covered our sins that we inherit the promises by faith because ultimately it's not the amount of your faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham, this is beautiful, by the way. Abraham, when he had to offer up Isaac, how could Abraham offer up the son of promise? How could Abraham go through with obeying God and offering up the son of promise, which would have been the hardest thing Abraham was ever called to do, when God had said, you're going to get all the promises fulfilled in Isaac. Now go kill him. And the Bible says, Hebrews 11 says that he reasoned, sanctified reasoning. Abraham said, God has said, you're going to get everything through Isaac, ultimately through Jesus Christ, the seed of Isaac and Abraham. You're going to get everything in Isaac, go kill Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews said, Abraham reasoned, God has said this, I know that's true. God's now telling me to do this. God must be able to raise up Isaac from the dead. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead and so fulfill those promises. And that's what you're called to do. You, by faith, are called to dig into God's word. And then when you look at the circumstances of your life and you say, it doesn't look like God loves me very much when I didn't get the job raise or I lost my job or this, my spouse left me or all these hardships happen. Where's this good and loving God? Where is this God who declares himself to be all providing and all caring, you take the scriptures and you take the difficulties and you reason like Abraham did. And through faith and perseverance, you endure. That's how you do it. That's what the scripture says. That's what our own experience tells us. I want to read you something. I was profoundly impacted by this. Um, Sinclair Ferguson was reflecting on the fact that most people in America say, I'm, I'm a pretty patient person. And Ferguson said, you know, when they say that, I just like to think, you've just never been tested. You're not a patient person at all. And this is what he says. He says, we're all patient when we have no frustrations. But the very essence of patience is that we're able to cope with, bear the burden of, and see through frustrations. And here is one of the great paradoxes of God's ways with us. God is determined to be frustrating with you. Because unless he's frustrating to you, at the end of the day, you'll begin to confuse your will for your life with God's will for your life. I think that's profound. God is determined to be frustrating to you so that you trust his promises and you don't confuse your will for your life. Because if God gave you everything you wanted and did everything that you wanted, you would be God. And you would think whatever you did was right and holy and pure and God's will for your life. And that's not how God operates. And that's not how God was operating with the Hebrews. The Hebrews had their possessions taken away. They accepted the plundering of their good. They were given a bad lot. They were sold a a bad bill of sales. And then the promise comes in and says, but they are heir of everything. And they are moving to glory, and you are moving to glory. And if Abraham had confused that, 
If Abraham had confused his circumstances with God's promises, Abraham would not be the, the model of faith. If you confuse your circumstances with God's promises and God's working and your need to persevere through frustrations and difficulties by clinging to the promises and by reconciling and reasoning about how God will do what he does as he has promised, as he has guaranteed, if you confuse those, you're going to have a very miserable life and you will depart at the end of the day from Jesus. And you will show yourself never to have come to him. And notice what the writer says, because this is so beautiful, that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, those who, like Abraham, persevere, persevere not because of their faith at the end of the day, but because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all things in his life, death, and resurrection, and he has gone into heaven, he has passed through the veil, he has gone into the presence of God, and the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, I don't know if the kids here love to go to boats and see anchors go down deep into the water. I used to love that as a kid. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the anchor, and essentially God takes him and he throws him up into glory, and he anchors your soul to Jesus, and that the way you're going to make it to glory is because Jesus, the forerunner, has gone there for you, not because you're so great in your endurance. You will endure if you have Jesus as the anchor of your soul. If the person and saving work of Jesus Christ is everything to you, you are anchored to God. That anchor sits on the throne of God. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to pull the chain and pull all of his people up to him. He's going to establish you and he's going to pull you to glory. He's done everything to bring you to glory if you're in him. The way you're going to persevere is to know that you have an anchor for the soul. I don't know how much you know about sailing. I know some of you have boats. But I know one thing. If you don't have an anchor, you're in big trouble. I do know that. I think everybody knows that. You don't have an anchor, you're in trouble. Spiritually, if you have anything else that you think is an anchor in your life, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no anchor at all for your soul. If you're finding satisfaction in your family, your spouse, your child, your job, your status, if you find satisfaction in anything else and you are hoping in those things, when God rips those things away from you, like he did from Abraham, you'll find, you'll find that that was what you were trusting in as, as an anchor. And that's no anchor at all. That's, a, that's an anchor made out of sand. I want you to envision an anchor made out of sand. Anything but Jesus is an anchor made out of sand. And when that drops in the water, it's just going to flee away. It's not going to ground you in anything. And yet God has grounded you in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has said, I will never let you go. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. I want to read you a great quote as we close. Thomas Peck, an old Southern Presbyterian, was reflecting on this and basically asking the question, what does it take for you, if you're in union with Jesus, what does it take for you to fall away if you're in union with him? And this is what he says. 
He says, when Christ can be degraded from his position at the right hand of the majesty on high, when he can be made to abdicate his supremacy over principalities and powers and might and dominion and to become again a wanderer among sinful men, the object of their reproach, and finally the victim of their malignity, when the father can forget his acceptance of the work of his own son, an acceptance so solemnly proclaimed in raising him from the dead and giving him glory, then and not before. For then can one who has been united to Christ become subject to the penalty of the law and expiate that penalty in the everlasting pains of hell. What he's saying is for you to fall away from Jesus, if you're in saving union with Jesus, everything that Jesus Christ has done would have to be undone. If you are in saving union with Jesus, it's because God's promise is sure. It's because he has confirmed it with an oath. It's because Christ was cut apart on the cross. It's because Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. He is an anchor for the souls of his people. And the only way, the only way that will fail you is if everything Jesus did through all of his life and ministry and does now is undone. That's the only way. And I don't know about you, but my soul rides on the high hills of heaven when I meditate on that. My soul soars when I meditate on those truths. Because at the end of the day, my determination, my efforts to be a better person are just like the sandy anchor. But what Jesus has done is forever, eternally settled in glory for his people because of God's promise. I hope that you are someone who takes the time to Search the scriptures for the promises of God and think about all that you have in Jesus. Every promise is yes and amen in Christ to those who believe. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your certain and sure word. We thank you that you do not change, that you cannot change, that you cannot lie. We thank you that you will fulfill everything that you have promised. We, like Abraham, need your promises reiterated and given to us again and again, and we thank you that week by week you remind us of your exceedingly great and precious promises. We thank you, O God, that you have fulfilled them In your eternal son, Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were cut apart, that the oath was kept, that the covenant was established, that everlasting blessing flows to those who believe in you. Establish us by your grace. Establish us in faith. Make us to be people who endure by faith in those promises. Our Father, we pray that we would know the Lord Jesus in a more deep way, an intimate way, as the anchor of our souls. We pray that we would know that we are anchored to him and anchored to glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.